You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Well, good morning, everybody. We want to welcome you here to Kingsway this morning. Welcome everybody watching online live. Hey, the snow wasn't as bad as you thought you could have showed up. And uh, anybody maybe watching out of state or later on, we just want to welcome. We're glad you're here today. So we are starting this series called Core. I don't know how many of you are Bourne fans, like Jason Bourne, the movies. Anybody a fan? Like all the guys that are like, yes. Anyway, I, uh, I remember years ago when the first one came out. I know it's been a long time now. I remember watching an interview with Matt Damon, and he talked about how he went to kind of meet, they asked him to meet with a trainer before the movie. And he met with a trainer and Matt Damon worked out. He stayed in pretty good shape. But he said, you know, the, the guy had him like pull up his shirt. And he said, well, why? And he said, hmm, we got a lot of work to do. And Matt was a little bit put off. He was a little bit offended. He's like, what are you talking about? You know, I work hard. I go to the gym or whatever. But the guy's like, no, no, no. The amount of physical activity we're going to ask you to do is going to be so intense, you're going to have to have your core in fantastic shape. Now, if anybody in here works out or enjoys working out, or if you're you know, crazy like that, then you know... A healthy core is key to everything else. If your core is weak, everything else falls apart because it's kind of like the middle area. It's the center of everything. Everything hinges and holds together on it. You can work out your arms all day long, but eventually you'll hit a peak if your core is not in shape. You can work out your legs all day long, but eventually you'll hit a peak if your core is not in shape. And by the way, church life is no different. If your core is not solidified, if your core is not strong, if it's not really something you're pouring into, then everything else gets weak and falls apart. So what we want to do over the next five weeks, and I want to encourage you, first of all, be here. Watch online, listen later in the week if you miss, or if something you heard you want to go back and listen to, I want you to do that. What we want to talk about is the core, the core of being a Christian, specifically the core of what it means to be a Christian at Kingsway. So the things we're going to talk about are true for all churches and all times, regardless of where you live, your language, or how old you are. However, we want to talk specifically about what God is calling Kingsway to do. And this is going to culminate in the last week with a massive worship service. So we want you to really plan to be here on the fifth week. Plan to be there. So without any further ado, let me jump into this. I hold in my hand perhaps the most important measurement in the history of the world. Can you see it? It's actually between my fingers. I, can you zoom in, camera? Let's see if I put this right up against there. Now do you see it? Oh, yeah. That's so much better. <laughs> Where's like the 10,000, you know, HD, whatever, that we're up to now? Like still, I, I don't even know if I can see it because I can't, I can't hold it in such a way that my fingers don't let it drop. It's tiny. Anybody who's read their Bible is probably very well aware of what I hold between my fingers. But if you're new at this, or if you're watching online, you're not sure about this Jesus guy, you may not know why this is the most important measurement possibly in the history of the world. It's simply this, a mustard seed. How many of you got it right? Were you betting with your spouse? That's what I can hear when I'm up here, right? And why is this the most important measurement in the history of the world? Well, number one, Jesus was the master teacher, truly the master leader. Everything Jesus did at every moment was a lesson for somebody else. And Jesus was excellent at seizing the culture around him, taking moments and saying, now this is like this. Faith is like this. The kingdom of God is like that. God is like this. I am like this. And he was always doing this kind of thing. But did you know that one of his most common analogies is a seed? 
He used it all the time. And it makes sense because Jesus lived in what's called an agricultural society. Many people around him farmed. Many people around him did these things. So it made sense to do that. But Jesus specifically doesn't just use seeds. He specifically used one seed over and over and over again. And it's this little tiny thing, a mustard seed. And why is that important? Well, because a mustard seed is actually the, the, one of the smallest seeds in the entire garden, and yet it grows to one of the biggest plants in the entire garden. In fact, so much so that when a mustard seed grows into its full size, birds can actually land in it. That's how strong it is, which all of those pieces go into the many ways that Jesus seizes this tiny analogy to make a really big point. In fact, in one way, Jesus takes this tiny mustard seed, I don't know if you know this, he says this, He's been hanging out up on a mountain. It's called the Transfiguration. It's a powerful moment that's not for today. But he's been hanging out with Peter, James, John, and he comes down. And his disciples are trying to heal a little boy. And they just can't seem to heal him. Apparently, this little boy has been uh, tormented by uh, evil spirits. And the disciples, imagine this. If you read earlier in the book of Luke and some other places, you'll find the story in Matthew 17. The disciples have been killing it in Jesus' name. They've been doing all kinds of things, teaching people, baptizing people, healing people, miracles in the name of Jesus. But now in this moment, they are powerless to do anything. They're a little embarrassed and ashamed. And they finally get Jesus off to the side after Jesus fixes the problem and says, what, what was wrong? Like, we've been nailing it up to this point. Why in this moment couldn't we solve the problem? And Jesus looks at him and he says, you know, you only need faith as big as a mustard seed. And you can literally say to this mountain, crumble into the sea and it must obey. Now, for centuries, people have pondered about what exactly Jesus meant when he said that. I literally know people who've gone to mountains and tried this, and I thought, you're an idiot. Because if God actually did what you're asking him to do, do you realize the repercussions of that? Like, you're standing in the middle of a massive earthquake at this point. Not the smartest thing you ever did. Thank God he loves you too much to listen at that point. So Jesus couldn't have been literal, right? Or could he? Here's the thing we know about God. God's not real big on platitudes and philosophical dilemmas. When I was in philosophy class my first year at Kent State University, I remember uh, them just kind of uh, devolving to me, uh, letting me know about this philosophical conundrum. Can God create a rock too big for him to move? If the answer is yes, then he's not all-powerful. If the answer is no, then he's not all-knowing. What if the answer is, I don't care, it's stupid? Is that one of the options I'm allowed to give? It's this conundrum somebody created to make God look like he literally can't know everything or can't be all-powerful. God's not real big on silliness. But God is really big on faith. So how exactly did Jesus mean for us to apply this tiny, little faith? Let's just take a look a little bit. Let's go through a journey in God's word and see what we learn as people who want to follow after God. Let's start in Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. This is in the NIV. Jesus has gathered together the disciples, and he asks them one simple question. Who do people say I am? And Peter answers, as Peter is often the first to speak. I can relate. Peter's a good guy. And he says something along the lines of, uh, people say you're the prophet. Maybe you're Ezekiel. You know, come back. I don't know, maybe Elijah. I meant to say, no, Ezekiel. Maybe you're Jeremiah. You're somebody important like that from the past. And Jesus says, okay, so Peter, who do you say I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ. 
And here's Jesus' response, verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now, if you don't know biblical history, this is a really, really, really important verse for many reasons that, that Protestants and Catholics have been fighting about for years, and we're not even going there today. I just want to touch on a few things. Number one, this guy's name, Peter, you maybe have heard of him, St. Peter, you know, heard of that guy? Yeah, that wasn't his first name originally. His name was Simon. That's the name that his uh, parents gave him. That's the name he was born with and called. That's why when you read your gospel, sometimes you see Simon or Simon Peter. Later, it's pretty much like Peter only, but not at the very beginning, because it's in this very place where Jesus changed his name from Simon to Peter because Peter means rock. Like, you know, you pick up in your hand like a rock, like you'd try to skip along the water, you know, like a rock, it's strong. And then he goes on and he says, and on this rock, I will build my church. And this has been debated for years among Christians, but he uses two different words. This rock here is like a, a handheld stone, but this rock here is like a massive boulder in the Greek. Jesus is saying, Peter, I'm changing your identity based off your confession in me. I am the Christ, the son of the living God, yes. And Peter, you are now going to be a rock just cut from this massive rock, which is me, and on this massive rock, which is me, I will build my church. Now the word church here in Greek is the word ekklesia, ekklesia. You may not care about all these Greek word things, but the reason this is interesting is because the word church literally just means the called out ones. It literally just means, you know, I lived among everybody else. I'm a dentist. I'm a doctor. I'm a teacher. I'm a stay-at-home mom. Whatever it is I am, I'm a student. I'm a child. I'm a parent. I'm a single. Whatever these things are that identify us in culture, when we come to faith in Jesus, we become one of those who were called out of that and into something different, something else, a part of the gathering of the ecclesia or the gathering of the called out ones. But now go back. Put that verse back up there. Notice how all these pieces fit together. Now, on my name and my identity, this is Jesus talking, I'm going to build my gathering, and that gathering is not going to be overcome by the gates of Hades. I don't know about you, but for most of my life, until about four years ago, I had interpreted this little verse to mean that Satan is attacking us, but we can stand strong and know that even though the enemy attacks, we will not be overcome. In fact, we can gather together and sing, we shall overcome. Maybe not. <laughs> Do you know that's not what Jesus is saying at all? I've said this before, so if you've been at Kingsway for any length of time, you know this. Gates in ancient days weren't something that the enemy used to advance forward. Gates in ancient days were the weakest part of the defense system. In fact, if you wanted to take down a fortified city, you would go for the gates first because it's a place where there isn't a tall stone wall. They would often put moats or tar or whatever, you know, depending on which time in history you are, right there at the gates because they know that's the place you're going to try to knock down. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, my called out ones whose identity has been changed to match my life will storm the gates, the defense systems of the enemy, and they will not be able to hold up against them. But I wonder what's happened to the church over the last 2,000 years. Have we forgotten that there's an enemy 
Oh yeah, he's coming for you. The scripture's clear. He prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And yet we are told, storm the gates. Storm the gates. Storm the gates like it's all that matters. Take back what the enemy has taken from you. Now, lest you're not sure about what exactly does that mean, I want to make this clear today. I don't want to make this clear throughout this series. But I want to show you for just a few moments how this was exactly what we see Jesus doing in his everyday ministry life. In fact, turn with me, if you will, to a passage from Isaiah chapter 61. Isaiah chapter 61. This is the very passage. Jesus stands up. He's actually in his own hometown. And he stands up and he grabs a scroll and he opens the scroll and he finds this very verse. And he says basically to his hometown, I am here. Here's how you know I am here. Here's what I came to do. And he quotes this very passage. Did you know that? So Jesus is referring this Old Testament passage to himself to describe his ministry. Here's what he says. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me. Because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. See, there's a lot of people out there, maybe some of you today or maybe even watching online, have wrestled with Jesus. Because the Jesus you hear about is only the one that you hear about through the mouth of somebody who's angry about something. And don't get me wrong, God hates sin. God hates sin so much that he killed his one and only son to bring us back to himself. But that ought to tell us something, God loves us. Oh, God hates sin, but he loves us. And yet what many people hear when they think of Christian is a law that's been passed, or a person red-faced and yelling and spitting, or a president, regardless whether it's this one or the one before, that they don't like or they don't agree with, but they said they're this or they said they're that. And we judge the one in whom all messages are to point to, and we judge him by the actions of those who are imperfect, including men like me. And what if, and I'm just asking if you're visiting or watching online, I'm just asking if you would consider, what if, what if Jesus' message was really just this one? I have come to bind up the brokenhearted, to comfort those who mourn, to set captives free. Because see, if Jesus literally meant that this was his mission on earth, then the question would be, who exactly is he talking about? And it's easy, right, in your brain to go, oh, I think I know who he's talking about. He's talking about my neighbor. He's talking about my sister. He's talking about my brother. He's talking about my parents. Man, are they jacked up. He's talking about somebody else somewhere else, right? They really need him. He's talking about people in third world countries who don't have any of the really nice stuff or indoor plumbing like we have today. He's talking about them because they need Jesus clearly. And I love the way John Stott says this great, great, great uh, theologian and pastor he said, Jesus Christ is indeed a crutch for the lame to help us walk upright, just as he is also medicine for the spiritually sick, bread for the hungry, and water for the thirsty. We do not deny this. It is perfectly true. But then all human beings are lame, sick, hungry, and thirsty. The only difference between us is not that some are needy while others are not. 
It is rather that some know and acknowledge their need, while others either don't through ignorance or won't through pride. I often get into theological or doctrinal discussions with my friends, especially from other churches. And the reason they're still my friends is because we can get to a point where things get heated and they won't admit they're wrong. (laughs) We can get to a place where we say, you know what, your relationship to me is far more important. It's too important for us to divide over. Let's just acknowledge that we don't agree on certain things and you're wrong. Just accept that right now. Can we get there? But I often say this, inside the body of Christ, when people truly love Jesus with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, it's like beggars kneeling at the cross and sometimes arguing over how they got there. Well, I got here because of this and I got here because of that. And the reality is all of us got here because a savior, a savior first decided I'm going to go bring back that which is mine. I'm going to go save my own, bring them home. Paul hits this point so hard in the book of Romans that he says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And the point he's trying to make, if you read Romans from beginning to end, is we literally cannot save ourselves. We keep trying to clean our act up. We keep trying to get better. We keep making promises and commitments. I'm going to be a better husband, a better father. I'm going to try harder as a mother and as a wife. I keep doing all these things, and yet I keep failing. I keep stumbling. I keep falling. And Paul even comes to this place when he gets to Romans chapter 7, and he says, woe to me. I'm such a wretched man. Who's going to save me from this life of sin and death? It seems like the thing I want to do, I don't do. And no matter how hard I try, the thing I don't want to do is the very thing I keep doing. But then he gets to the point of the gospel. And right there at the end of Romans 7, as he builds into Romans 8, he finally comes to this conclusion, but praise be to God. Praise be to God, because though I was lost and stuck in sin, an enemy of God because of my actions, God chose not to leave me in that place, but to come and to rescue and to redeem and to change my life from the inside out, from the core of who I am, so that everything else outside of me acts in response to this new heart, this new mind, this new spirit that's been placed inside me. Go read Romans later. That's the summary of the entire book. But let me ask you a question. How did Jesus exactly do this? How did Jesus actually get that to happen in our lives? It comes back to this. Let me just show you real quick. Matthew chapter 12, verse 29. Jesus is actually performing miracles. His faith is much bigger than a mustard seed. But as he's doing these miracles, he's being accused of all kinds of things. Well, he's doing this by the power of Satan. There's no way that a man of God could do this. I mean, look, he heals on Sabbath, and look at the things that he's doing. There's no way, there's no way. And Jesus says, wait a minute. If Satan comes and fights against Satan, (coughs) he'd be crazy. Any kingdom divided against itself can't stand. It doesn't matter if it's a good kingdom or a bad kingdom. Kingdoms fall when there's internal fighting. It's what Russia's trying to do in America, by the way. This is what happens when kingdoms start fighting and backbiting and devouring against each other. It happens in churches all over the United States. You know that. Thousands and thousands of churches close their door every day, and part of it is because they've lost the strength of their core, of what God has called them to be. They start fighting with each other, and next thing you know, this little thing loses its power. 
And Jesus in this passage being accused and called of all kinds of things, he says this, no, wait a minute, no, wait a minute. Verse 29, chapter 12. How can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. I don't know about you, but have you ever read like through your, through your, through your Bible study one day or whatever you came to this passage, you're like, okay. Note to self, if I ever want to rob somebody, tie up the strongest person in the house first. Thanks for the wisdom, Jesus. <laughs> but do you see what Jesus is saying? It's beautiful. Again, Jesus is being accused of, of working on behalf of Satan. Jesus says, no, 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 no. I'm not working on behalf of him. I'm trying to take everything he's taken from me. But see, I can't plunder the enemy until I tie him up, until I bind him. But once I bind him, no problem. No problem. Once the strong man has been bound, I'll be able to send in my troops and they could take whatever they want from him. Okay, church, I realize if you're visiting with us today, this may be a message that's hard for you to get because you're just not there yet. You're not even sure you believe in Jesus and all the spiritual talk and demons and Jesus. It's like weird. It's weirding you out. I get it. I get it, but I can't run away from it. It's right there in the text, okay? And the reason is important. I want you to get this, church. I want you to get this. What Jesus is trying to say is that he has bound the strong man so that you can plunder. You know what you're going to need to do this? Faith about that big. Well, how exactly does that work? How do those things go together? Let's just take a look at another thing Jesus says. John chapter 12. Look at verse 20. Now, there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to Andrew to tell Andrew, and Andrew and Philip, in turn, told Jesus. Now, in case you're lost, me too. All right, so you're not alone. There's some things going on in the text that we don't understand why they're going on there. I just love that the gospel, it's like I'm preaching, right? It's like, why did he tell us that? I don't know, it was in his brain, so we put it in there. So... Get part of what's happening here. So Jesus is literally at the last week of his life before he goes to the cross. You got to get that. That's part of the story. In fact, he has just ridden on a donkey and people are putting down branches. Hosanna, Hosanna. And they're worshiping him. There's something about him. He's the Messiah. He is the Christ. And now here we are. We are probably 24 hours or so away from the crucifixion. It's down to the last moment. Jesus is in the temple. All these crazy things are happening. If you put the gospel stories together, all these conversations and things. And now... Some Greeks, we don't know anything about them, but they're curious. They've heard enough about Jesus. They would like to meet him. So they find uh, Philip, and they go to Philip, and they're like, hey, um, can you help us? We don't know why they went to Philip. Did Philip have some connection to the Greeks? Did Philip know these dudes? Did they just see Philip? Why did Philip not go to Jesus himself? I don't know. Apparently, Philip maybe had like a half a mustard seed. I don't know. Philip might be a little bit afraid of what Jesus would think. So he goes and grabs Andrew, who's Peter's brother. You're like, who cares? Well, there's probably a connection because Peter is one of the most important guys, right? Everybody knows that. So Andrew's his brother. So Philip's like, okay, I can't go to Peter. I'll go to Andrew and we'll go to Jesus. So he goes to Andrew. He's like, these dudes want to meet Jesus. What do you think? And Andrew's like, I don't know. I'm not sure what Jesus will say. Let's go ask Jesus what he thinks about the matter. That's what's going on. You're like, why is any of this relevant? Stick with me. 
Stick with me. Verse 23. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if, 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 if it, it dies, it produces many seeds. Go ahead and read the rest of the story. That's all the answer he gives. I'm guessing Philip and Andrew went, so is that like a no? <laughs> Your kids ever do this, right? They come in and, hey, um, can I go and play video games? And, you know, as a parent, you're like, oh, you know, we played earlier for like an hour, and I don't know, but, man, I'd love another hour off, you know, not be a parent right now. And uh, I don't know, why don't you go ask your dad? Uh, he told me to come and ask you. Mm, why'd you go to him first? You know, it's like, uh, uh, what do you think? Do you think it's a wise thing for you to do? And they're like, just tell me yes or no, which is it? The disciples are probably like, ah, I'm going to go back and tell them what you told me, but I don't know what the answer is yet. This is important because if you understand the gospel story, what's just happening here, it's so beautiful, and it means something profound for you, but you probably never read it in its right context before. See, Jesus in his ministry, he came for the Jew, not for the Gentile. Maybe you don't know what that means. See, if you go all the way back, once... once there was rebellion on the earth. God chose Abraham, the guy we talked about all last month that said, I'm going bur- to birth something special through him. And through him, all nations will be blessed. Through, literally, through him, I'm going to bring this Messiah. So the Messiah has come, but he's come first for the children of Abraham. That would be the Jewish people. He came first for them. The intention was always that after he died on the cross and rose from the dead, now all the Jews, all those from Abraham would go into the world so that everybody may know. And it's sprinkled throughout the Bible, the story of God. There's only three times in the Gospels that I know of that we see um, Jesus interacting with non-Jews. And all of them are positive, but there's a reason why each of them show up in the story. There's a Phoenician woman whose daughter, again, is being uh, brutalized and, and tormented by spiritual forces that we cannot see. And Jesus literally says to her, why should I help you? I'm not going to, uh, uh, should I let the dogs eat from the table? And she's like, what? And, and, and she's not at all offended. And so she says, you know, even the dogs get scraps. And Jesus says, good answer, your daughter is healed. There's another guy, he's a, he's a Roman soldier, but apparently he loves God because he's built like a temple and he's done great things for God's people. And he's got a, a, a sick child as well or a sick servant. And God heals that. And then here we get to this one. There's two Greeks. And Jesus basically says, you know what? I can't really do this right now because the time for me to die has come. That's what he's saying. I can't really go talk to them right now because it's time for me to die. In fact, jump down to verse 27 and we see this. He says, now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. (laughs) No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Again, nobody in Jesus' life had any idea what was going on in his head and his heart. He kept sprinkling in, it's coming, it's coming. They're gonna destroy this temple, but in three days I'll rise again. It's coming, it's coming. They're going to crucify me. But if I'm lifted up, I'll draw all men to myself. He keeps dropping these little sprinkles of what's to come, but they have no idea. They're expecting God to do what they believe God ought to do, which is build a kingdom whereby the Jews will be prominent and overthrow Rome and the world will be okay again like it was with Solomon thousand years before. Jesus is letting him know, no, I got to die. And in fact, it, it, it troubles me. The word here in Greek is he is deeply disturbed. But he says, what should I do? 
Should I say, Father, help me stop this? No. It's for this very reason I came. And in the next 24 hours, it's going to happen. Well, why is that relevant? Well, because the way Jesus bound the strong man, the way Jesus set the captives free, the way Jesus comforts those who are mourning, the way Jesus heals the brokenhearted, in 24 hours would begin. And in roughly four days, it would end. He goes on and he says in John chapter 12, verse 25, anyone who loves their life will lose it. Well, anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant will also be. My father will honor the one who serves me. If you're sitting here today and you're visiting with us, you're watching online, you don't know anything about Jesus. A lot of what I said may be over your head because it's, it's Christianity 101, but it's really for those who cross this line of faith. But I don't want you to miss what Jesus just told us in about five verses. Very cryptic language, but don't miss it. Because what Jesus just said in those five verses is life-altering. Number one, he just told us how much he loves you. He just told us how important to him you are. In spite of your mistakes, in spite of your failures, in spite of your weakness, your temptations, and your sin, he loves you. If you were to add up all of the things you've done to spit in his face and go against his ways, it wouldn't be enough to overcome his love. That he is absolutely committed to seeing this through. Though it cost him his life here on earth, he's willing, more than willing, he's able to push through that and pass that in order to redeem you. And the enemy has no eye. So Satan keeps driving towards killing him because Satan believes if that's what happens, he wins the game. And yet he has no idea that in his death would come the power for living. Because when he rose from the dead, he took away the fear of the one weapon that Satan has over everybody, and that is the fear of death. Because when fear is driving your life, I'm not sure I can. What if what it cost me? What if what I, 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 when all of that is driving you, you can't step into what God has for you because now you're living for here. But when you choose to give up here, you get there and a whole lot more. I love the way, again, John Stott says this. Many people visualize a God who sits comfortably on a distant throne, remote, remote, aloof, uninterested, and indifferent to the needs of mortals until, it may be, they can badger him into taking action on their behalf. Such a view is wholly false. The Bible reveals a God who, long before it even occurs to man to turn to him, while man is still lost in darkness and sunk in sin, takes the initiative, rises from his throne, lays aside his glory, and stoops to seek until he finds him. 
And look, if you're visiting with us and you're just not sure about all this stuff, get nothing else but this out of today. God is on a mission to save you, to redeem you, to win you to himself. And he has paid the ultimate price of his own life to make that happen. And all you need to do to receive that very love is have faith. And the measure of your faith might not even be that small yet. It might even be a fifth of that, a tenth of that, a billionth of that. Is it enough to believe that you cannot redeem and save yourself? Is it enough to believe that in spite of your efforts, you can't seem to get there on your own and you need a savior because if you can get to there, God can grow you the rest of the way. But now the other reason Jesus even has this conversation. Let's remember where we began Philip and Andrew go to Jesus. He's got a couple Greek guys. I really want to meet with you. And Jesus says, I can't. I don't have time. It's time for me to die. But they don't understand what he's saying. They're a little confused by the message. But remember what Jesus said, I can't. In fact, he goes on and he says, my life is like a kernel of wheat. You know what a kernel of wheat is like, right? Maybe you don't. But in an agricultural society, they would have known. I've got to put my life in the ground. If I put my life in the ground as a kernel of wheat, it'll grow up and produce a stalk that'll eventually produce many more kernels of wheat, many more seeds that can fall into the ground and they will go into the ground. And if they rise up, they will produce more seeds that will fall into the ground that will produce more stalks that will rise up. Do you see where this is going? You only need to play out what Jesus is saying further. Put it in everyday terms. What Jesus just said to them is, I don't have time to meet with them right now because I must die. But don't worry about that. When I die and raise from the dead, I'll raise up an entire army of people who will die so that they might raise from the dead. That they might raise up an entire army that will die they might raise from the dead. Make no mistake about this. If you have felt the voice of God drawing you to himself, he is calling you to the most sacrificial thing that you have ever known, and that is death. Death. This is why Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, consider the cost. Consider what it might cost to follow me. You know if, you, if somebody sits out to build a tower and they don't have the right resources or money or whatever it takes to finish the tower, people are going to laugh at them and mock them. <laughs> you fool, you set out to do this, now you look like an idiot because you couldn't get the job done. And he says in the same way, consider what it costs to follow me because if you get halfway into this and you aren't, aren't able, if you don't have faith that big, you aren't going to be able to finish this job. And if you don't, people are going to mock you. But he says, but if you have faith even this big and you hang on when people mock you, don't worry, your Father in heaven is taking note. And if you confess me before men, your Father, I will confess you before him in heaven and he will reward you. Amen. So what is he saying? Well, don't count this life as worth very much. It's brief. For some of us, it might be only months or years, perhaps hours, a baby that's lost at birth. But for some of us, it's It's decades. For some of us, it might even be a century. But whatever you have, whether it's 30, 50, 80, 100 years, are you willing to make this trade with God? I'll take your life and I'll give you mine. Now, here's the hard part about that. Most of the men in this room, when I say that, they go, yeah. But we live in America, let's be honest. 
We're not over in the Middle East. ISIS isn't hunting us down. The next terrorist attack could come at any moment, of course. You could find yourself in a school shooting, a business shooting, a public display of terrorism of some sort where your faith is put on the line. And somebody looks at you and says, do you believe? And if you do, this is it. They're going to kill you. Of course, that could happen. God forbid any of us shrink back from that moment. But for most of us, that's not going to be our story. So that Jesus, what in the world could you mean when you said, take up your cross daily and come follow me? He simply meant this. Here's our purpose as a church. We kind of rewrote this statement so that it was less specific to a group and more for every person who would come here. It's simply this. Here's our purpose as a church. Our purpose is to become more like Christ. You're like, that's all that means? That's all it means. But it has unbelievable implications for everyday life. It means that I'm willing to put aside what's best for me for what's best for you. It means that I die to self by giving up my time to serve you. It means that I give up of my own vacations and projects and ideas. And if it means doing something that's best for you, It means showing up at church on Sunday morning and not thinking about how do I help me get what I need, but me showing up and saying, how do I make sure you meet the God of eternity here today? This is how we plunder the strong man. Jesus has already bound him on the cross. All we need to do is run into the darkness and shine a big light and say, I don't have all the answers, I don't know how to fix all this, I don't know how to solve it, but I will not retreat. I will not run away and wait for the attack to come and stand strong. No, I'm gonna run into the darkness. I'm gonna run into the mess. I'm gonna run into the foulness of life and the hardship and the pain where I don't have answers. And God seems to be attacked at every place, and it seems like God isn't even there, and I'm gonna run in and say, here is God. He's in me, and I have faith this big, so I can say to these mountains, fall into the sea, and God will be with me. And I wonder what would happen if not one of these, but a whole church full of these were to do that together. I wonder what would happen if an entire church of tiny faith would say, I'm going to plunder the strong man. I'm going to start ministries in Jesus' name. I'm going to lead a men's group and help my men find the freedom that they need. I'm going to lead a women's Bible study. I'm going to show up. I'm going to serve communion. I'm going to love kids. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to adopt in Jesus' name because the enemy is killing it over there and that place and that home and that story and I'm gonna shine light in the darkness and I'm gonna trust in faith. It's gonna be hard. It was hard for Jesus. Is it gonna be hard for his followers? You bet, but I'm ready to die for him. Now, how might we accomplish that? That's what we're gonna talk about for the next three weeks. But I do wanna read this great quote by A.W. Tozer. He says this, the true follower of Christ will not ask, if I embrace this truth, what will it cost me? Rather, he will say, this is truth. God, help me to walk in it. Let come what may. Jesus goes on and he says in John chapter 12, verse 23, 
I love this in the Message Bible. I've already read it to you, but I love the way the message says it. Listen carefully. Unless a grain of wheat is buried in the ground, dead to the world, it is never any more than a grain of wheat. But if it is buried, it sprouts and reproduces itself many times over. In the same way, anyone who looks, or sorry, anyone who holds on to life just as it is destroys that life. But if you let it go, reckless in your love, you'll have it forever. Real and eternal. What does it mean to be a part of the church, the ecclesia, the called out ones, the gathering of God? What does it mean? So for those of you who got baptized on Christmas Eve, welcome. Those of you who are considering it, we're here for the last series, that God moved, disturbed, and you realized how much God loved you and was with you and was for you, I want you to understand what it is he wants to do in you. And I realize next week our attendance may go down by one-third because this is such a difficult thing to hear, but it is the truth, and i got to share it with you. To be a part of the church of God simply means this. And I think Hugh Holter said it better than I ever could have. It means this. The church is God's people intentionally committing to die together so that others can find his kingdom. God's people intentionally committing to die together so that others can find his kingdom. And here's my ask for you today. Is that you? Is that you? Is there something in your heart when I say these verses, when I read these quotes, when I tell these stories, is there something in you that says, yes, God, let it be me? Or is there something in you that says, yes, God, you can have everything but not that? Because I'll tell you right now, if you say that to him, I'll just tell you what he's gunning for. Church, friends, guests, Come and die with me. Let's change this corner of the world to the best of our ability until we go see our king and stand before him and hear him say, well done, good and faithful. If you feel like God is calling you to do that, I'm just going to ask you to stand right now with me and we're going to pray. Oh God, it is terrifying at times to think what might happen if we step into the darkness and be the light. God, sometimes it is absolutely terrifying to think what discomfort might come to my family if I follow through on what you're telling me to do. What loss might I experience? What friends might I lose? What discomfort might come? What pain or sorrow or grief might enter into my story, my family's story? Oh, but God, this is exactly what you did when you came after us. The reason we're sitting here today is because Jesus left heaven where he was worshiped as king and God, comfortable, nothing could hurt him, and he came down here and put his life on the line that he might raise up an entire army of people saying, Send me. Oh, God.
God, give us faith. Give us faith as tiny as that little mustard seed. Oh God, increase our faith from wherever it is, wherever it needs to be. To mean we might trust you, follow you faithfully wherever you call us, wherever you lead. And through us, God, we might see great things done in our day, in our age, in the name of Jesus. Let us not shrink back because of fear. Let us not shrink back because of anxiety or concern or pain or lack of resources. Instead, God, let us storm the gates of the enemy, plundering and taking back that which belongs to you. And God. May it all be from Jesus, by Jesus, and for Jesus, that in his name we would conquer all. And all God's people pray.